0: Welcome to the podcast. Most people don't, but you do. We have stories and conversations about people that are making a difference, people that are going above and beyond people that are exceptional. Today's guest is all of those things. We're going to be learning a little bit more about her need to do a quick shout out to our mutual friend, James McBride for sharing Deborah's introduction with me today's guest. Deborah Kellmeyer is the CEO and founder of Roar Africa. She started this company in New York in about 2006 to answer her friends and acquaintances questions about where should I go in Africa and what should I do? So she has now created this ultra-lux-safari company. It is changing the lives of guests through learning journeys. We will learn more about Roar Africa. She is going from North America to Southern Africa, often She's including her father into the business and doing some wonderful things, not only to preserve the wilderness, but also to help transform the trajectory for women in the safari industry. My name is Bart Berkey. I'm the CEO and founder of Most People Don't, and welcome to the show, Deborah Kellmeyer. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Bart. I'm delighted to be here and very kind of James to connect us.
0: Yeah, of course. She's joining us today from New York. And before I get into questions about you and growing up and what were your influences to want to start a company like this, can you explain to our listeners what Roar Africa is and what you do?
1: With pleasure, Bart. So we're a little bit of a hybrid. We're definitely not a travel agency. I think of us as a specialist for African experiences A bit like the neurosurgeon for african travel as opposed to the gp if that's helpful so we only do 12 countries in sub-saharan africa everywhere from kenya the equator down and that's because we have specialists in every country that are part of my team and Mm -hmm. we don't outsource the guest or client to what we call in the industry a ground handler or a dmc they stay with raw africa the entire way so our guests are 100% American and they stay with Roar Africa, a New York-based company, all the way through wherever they go within those 12 countries.
0: Incredible. So it is a way to give experiences to Americans that want to go to Africa. Your friends were asking you, what should I do and where should I go in Africa? So Deborah, that kind of gives us the groundwork about what Roar Africa does. We'd like to learn a little bit more about you growing up, and what were some of your early influencers growing up? Can you share?
1: Yes, of course. It's bizarre that I'm trying to survive in the concrete jungle today. I grew up during the, what was then, Rhodesian Bush War in Zimbabwe, the War of Liberation, on a farm, surrounded by wildlife. My father had rescued a lioness, and she grew up in our house, thinking she was a Labrador. So I had very close encounters with the wild from being a young child. My father loved the bush. My mom was a bush pilot just for fun. So we spent a lot of time getting out into the wild. And I I think it was just an extraordinary privilege when I look at it now, even though it was quite a lot of fear and anxiety at times as a young girl in the African bush, but it did develop um a huge passion and love and respect for wildlife um and that is where my love began I didn't know it was so enormous until I left it behind and came to America and had this deep yearning of needing to get back into the wild and really is where I find my peace and, and restoration today and I'm very uh, grateful to have a business that enables me to share that love and passion with other people who might have not had that opportunity to grow up so close to the wilderness and the wildlife.
0: Yeah, Deborah, amazing already and remarkable. I don't know any other person that I have talked to that I have met that has grown up with a lioness in their home. Right. I just, that is so unusual and so special. I would like to hear from a parental perspective. Tell us about your father a little bit more, because is he the one that was initially transformed into wildlife and conservation? Because It sounds like you, you grew up surrounded by the bush, if I'm saying it correctly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, was that intentional? Did your parents choose this location instead of going into a city to live? Was that their passion from the start? What can you share about your parents?
1: So my family go back in South Africa to 1688 on my mom's side. So 300 plus years really of French Huguenots who moved to Africa on my mom's side. Uh, Both my mom and dad grew up in South Africa. And while my mom's family started in the wine industry because the Dutch who had settled South Africa didn't really know much about wine, and the French did. So they started in Hook, which is French Quarter, and now very much the Winelands area of South Africa today. But I think it was the end of the 1600s, the, um, there was a, a terrible virus that hit the vines um, and wiped out all the vineyards in Cape Town and the surrounding areas. And so that family was then moved into the interior Gold and diamonds were established up on the highveld in Johannesburg. And so my mom's family were very much dentists and doctors and lawyers and that kind of thing. My mom and dad met at university in South Africa. My dad's parents were running Harry Oppenheimer's farms up in Zimbabwe. My dad, my grandfather was a zoologist and farmer. My dad mm-hmm. followed in his tracks, and it's that sort of colonial era, era, isn't it, <laughs> of yes. sort of movement from Europe into Africa. My dad's family, Scottish, British, German, but a lot of people at that time were farming because of Zimbabwe, the breadbasket of Africa. Incredible soils, incredible produce coming out of there. My dad ran a big dairy herd of 300 Friesland cows. But all around us was bush. So our home was on the side of a mountain. It was very natural for it to be lots of snakes and lots of baboons and a hyena in the swimming pool who liked to take its dips there. And yeah, so they- There was this sort of menagerie of wildlife that was living in the vicinity. Uh, My dad didn't own a safari lodge or I didn't grow up in that world, which I'm now Mm -hmm. working in, but I did develop that love from being surrounded by
0: the wild. Sure. So then uh, growing up even in high school, as an example, and preparing for university, what did you think you wanted to do? I
1: really had no idea. I've, I went through university and fell into a sales job in tech and computer science. And that company was actually Atlanta-based in Johannesburg. And then I think when you come from Africa, you're always wanting to get out and you're always staring at America and what Americans do and the sort of control of the world through the media of America and the influence. <laughs> and one's very seldom looking at home and seeing what wonders and amazingness one can create there. You want to get to the big world. Um, And so through that company, I was able to get a visa and come and work in their New York office in a sales role. Um, And yeah, I really got a big fright. It was very hard. We didn't know anybody. I came with my husband who was my boyfriend at the time and it was a really big struggle we found the sort of a little bit of a step backwards because South Africa had leaped forward with its technology, sort of frog leaped into the future. And coming to New York, we expected to be behind, but we actually had found ourselves going backwards. But it naturally evolved these conversations of, oh, you're from Africa. Oh, I've really wanted to always go. Can you help me? Can you look at my itinerary? And at the same time, my dad was dying to to do more and do more with wildlife, having been a zoologist all his life. And the two things came together and I said, why don't we get you back into the wild? You could guide some of my American friends and we'll just do this as a bit of a retirement plan for you, really. And he's Thank very you. high energy and gregarious and and really should have been in America. He He's such a, a sort of networking kind of vivacious person. And that's why and how we started. It was a little website and uh, a, a little $2,000 that I had spared to set this all up and um i'll never forget the family two families who who trusted me with their very first trip and i sent them off with my dad and it just grew from there our our first year we did four trips and him having grown up in south africa and being a zoologist he was able to give a lot of different perspectives on the history politics um and then the wildlife as well so I didn't ever dream of this being my business, and I certainly don't come from the travel industry, so I've really had to go on a lot of gut instinct and skill and taste in terms of how to design these trips and how to understand what will bring Americans the most joy. And I think that's where the advantage of living in New York and really understanding American culture and how hard Americans work, how precious their vacation is, how difficult our airports are in America to navigate and how to ease that travel grind and harshness of what we're, one's trying to reach joy and peace and calm, yeah. but it's never very easy. And so that's given me a lot of perspective in how to design these trips and make the real difference.
0: Yeah. The, the ease, the convenience, the simplicity of being able to go and experience something that is remarkable that will create calm and peace in your life, you don't want to have to go through 48 hours of hell to be able to enjoy that. As soon as you are done on with whatever workday and you're set to go to the airport, you want that to be an enjoyable experience. Uh, Deb, d- going back to 2006, did you stop everything from your sales career to jump fully into it, or was it somewhat progressive?
1: No, I worked two jobs for six years. How? I do not know.
0: I okay. <laughs>
1: Who was that woman? Who, how did you do that? And I really didn't know very much. I was piecing together itineraries and using my contacts and knowledge. And I guess one doesn't realize how much sort of instinctive knowledge one has. So I really used that, did both jobs, shut my office door, juggled two laptops, two cell phones, and got a little bit of momentum going. And then have bit by bit reached out to various women I knew who were in remote locations, who I could say, Hey, what about joining me? This is what I'm trying to do. You're on the ground. We need some guides. We need some vehicles. And we just started with South Africa because that was where my dad was. And that's how we began. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I would be running a $20, $30 million company today. That's not not what I thought I was doing. I thought I was setting my dad up for retirement, a little bit of an income, fun job.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like everything led to this happening. You were not necessarily overwhelmed with the New York city lifestyle you had referenced technology in South Africa was even a little bit more advanced when you had come to New York. So then you're thinking, okay, maybe this is not going to fill me up as much as I need to from a passion lens. And then the the combination of people asking, I want to go to Africa, what should I do? And then trying to do kindness for your father, those things just seem to merge and then it really took off from there. And as you described your father, is your father still involved with the, the business? And- no,
1: he's not involved in the business. He's still with us. Thank okay, you. Okay,
0: great. Okay. He's
1: involved in the business. The business sort of took on a life of his own. He's in his 80s now. So, but most of my team, I've got about 40 employees. Majority <laughs> of them are on the ground in Africa. We have a small okay. team here in the US.
0: Yes. Okay. And I just love the way that you described your father. That was the ca- one of the catapults to make it happen. He had to have the right attitude because then people are going to go back and tell everyone about what a great experience they had with Roar Africa and, and, and moving forward. The elements of understanding Americans and understanding New Yorkers and how valuable their time is. I, I've never really thought about really understanding your customer base that way in order to make it seamless, especially if you don't come from that travel industry world. What do you think enabled you to be observant enough to understand what New Yorkers initially were looking for?
1: I think I'm a deeply sensitive person and I cry in almost every movie unless it's a cartoon. My husband gets so annoyed. (laughs) I can't watch anything except Hugh Grant. But no, what's interesting when you move countries, and I was 24 when I got here, is you're so fresh and you're trying to learn and you're trying to fit in. And I still remember the days of trying to go and order a Starbucks and how traumatizing that was in New York because of the pace and the pressure and the accents and not knowing all the terminology. And I would stand outside, look through the window and try and understand what coffee I wanted. And that's yeah. just a little example of, that's how deeply one studies a culture when you're not from it and you're trying to fit in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, I still feel very foreign. I feel like a global orphan today, but I could see this tremendous force and this dedication to work in a way I'd not experienced in Africa. And as exciting as that was, I could also see how that could lead people to burnout and exhaustion. And I find the pace of life in America really a huge force and tough. And I felt like what I could provide and lead people to was enormous um, restoration and peace and gentleness and warmth. Mm. And perhaps mm. softer, just softer. I find it really hard. Even today, now at 50 years old, I'm sometimes the way someone will speak to me or I'll be like, <gasps> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's nice. When I go and check out at a supermarket in South Africa and someone says to me, How are you? I'm like, What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I'm, I'm back in uh, the sun land of sunshine and smiley, warm, gentle people, right? In New York, we're fighting for every breath. We're fighting on the subway. We're fighting for mm-hmm. our coffee. We're fighting for service. We're fighting for a table. And it's tough and it's exhausting. And you've got this energy pounding into your body, even if you're not aware of it. Even when you're sleeping at night, there's still this whole city vibrating inside one so my sensitivity to that for my uh, from my own experience and it right. led me to understand wow we can show a slightly different way right mm-hmm. and we can be a lot nicer in airports I love I'd love to be the CEO of the airports here in America and change it all and,
0: and yes so uh, it, Deborah you you'll laugh at this you'll appreciate this too I when I travel uh, my background, I was in a hotel business, as I had referenced with James McBride with Ritz-Carlton for many years, and now I am sharing words of encouragement and stories and positivity just because people feel busy, there's uncertain times, and they're tired, right? That's the kind of the common theme of what I'm seeing. When I travel, before I'm speaking and presenting or training, I travel with gratitude stones, and when I see someone that is going above and beyond, I will typically give them a gratitude stone and just tell them, look, this is from me to you. I travel with them. When I see someone going above and beyond, I just wanted to thank you. It's not a dollar, it's not a piece of candy, it's a gratitude stone. And keep it with you for as long as you need to. Let it remind you about the earth and about why we're here and just grounds you with nature. If someone needs it more than you, please pass it on. It's okay to pass it on. And many of my stories come from the uniqueness of seeing that uh, people can be exceptional, people can be kind, people can be friendly. So many of my stories happen at airports, when I'm traveling, at grocery grocery stores, anytime that there's this interaction. I do want to understand a little bit more about um, are spending, is it majority of your time in New York or are you splitting it between South Africa and New York? What percentage of time, ballpark?
1: Yeah, about 50-50 baht. It just okay. was- I host okay. big trips every year in August, greatest safari on earth. Um, And those are pretty special, they're 12 days each. We do them back to back because that's the only time that one can experience those destinations at their absolute prime. So I host those and then I host a women's empowerment trip once a year. And I host a retreat with the poet David White once a year. So those Mm. are uh, four pre-planned hosted trips that take me to Africa for about four months of the year. And then I'm in New York and, and around the world the rest of the time.
0: Yes. And whenever you want to create a fifth excursion with the motivational storyteller, Bart Berkey, that add uh, that, uh, okay, we, we'll talk about that later. I had to insert that. I had to insert that. No, I, it's, always, <laughs> it's always
1: exciting. That's the, whole, that's the whole preface of my business has been, because I don't come from the industry, I didn't follow the norm, right? I didn't look for a DMC to handle the delivery for my clients in the, from the U.S., I just did it myself because I didn't know that. And that naivety was so beneficial because it ended up differentiating us to all the other safari operators in the United States because Mm -hmm. I built a business on the ground because I lived between two countries. The client got the benefit, right? They stay with one company. Mm -hmm. And so all of these greatest safaris on earth and David White and Women's Empowerment are more creative innovation that's come with doing things differently, of using this experience to change lives both on the ground as well as for the traveler in ways that haven't been done before. Yes. I think that what what comes through to me more and more with the work is the power of the human sort of consciousness shift that happens while while we're in nature, while we're in the wild. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on safari. Mm but. That's where we can change, where we can find beauty, where we can soften our scaffolding, where we can crack mm-hmm. our hearts open, mm-hmm. and there are various means of using that space. And it could very well be a, a motivational uh, speaking trip, or writer's trip, or food yeah. trip, or, and so we do all sorts. I, I love yeah. coming up with new ideas and trying. Yeah, and to-
0: in, in you are—you have disrupted the luxury safari industry. You have disrupted it because of your unknowingness, your willingness to do it all. Uh, the reason why I was asking you about the time split, being a sensitive person, as you just revealed with us, how were you able to not let the, as you said, we're fighting for every breath, we're fighting for the table, we have vibrations that are nonstop in this city. How were you able to have that balance while you're in America, in new york city how can you handle that until you get to go somewhere
1: yeah it's very difficult and, and running a, a company this size today is it doesn't feel like there's any balance it feels like i'm in 24 7 flow but i say flow with the emphasis because it is flow i think mm. when one's passion is that strong and deep and one truly believes what you're providing can change lives and and, and has really had the sort of significant feedback that I could never have expected. Like people saying to me, "Deborah, you changed my life. You mm-hmm. see the world differently now. Those are very heavy statements that might not come from a trip to Italy or France. In, in looking into that with psychiatrists and psychologists and trying to understand what happens to us physiologically when our vision goes away from a small screen into a vast landscape of big skies and huge acacia trees and elephants and fresh air what happens physiologically what happens emotionally what happens spiritually and then the deep belief of that change for the better for Mm. for for gently playing a tiny role in humanity's perhaps shift into something more gracious and that belief even when i want to rip somebody's head off on the street of new york because they've just cut me off because they're talking on their cell phone and they're so unaware I immediately close my eyes and go back to the savannah, go back to a sunset, go back to an even an ocean sometimes and be like, I'm doing this to get people there, to get that feeling, to get that peace, to return each time a tad finder, a little bit more gentle and a little bit more caring for our Earth, because it stuns me how many people we're putting on this planet every month. It's crazy. And yeah. I think people just lose that perspective because they're so busy in their daily grind and trying to survive. And unless you go out into nature and realize how little of it is left, mm-hmm. no one's going to do anything about it.
0: No, yeah, you're right. What an altruistic reason for doing it. Not only are you passionate about your home country, you're passionate about helping people and making them feel better. I saw an interview with someone the other day on social media, and they said that they gave up the news for one year. No, it was for 10 years. They stopped reading the newspaper. They stopped watching the news. They were able to read more books. They were able to walk more miles as a result of disconnecting from the negative energy that sometimes comes at us, the simplistic way of life. And James and I talked about, and thank you for already listening to that episode, that we should go back to a more simpler time. Kids should not need a mobile device, or an iPad to watch cartoons when they're at dinner with their family. They should be playing with the tortilla dough that comes out at the Mexican restaurant. They should be enjoying the company and sharing jokes. Uh, we even use the example of, I remember growing up, we just needed a ball in some space. That's all we needed. Deborah, can you share any examples or stories Uh, without giving their names of how it has impacted some people's lives going in and exploring with Roar Africa
1: with pleasure I gave you that that sort of those comments of I see the world differently now Mm -hmm. um I think I've seen the the most beautiful thing when you're hosting these trips is seeing the, the people arrive and then 10 or 12 days later seeing the, pers- the people departing because they are almost night and day. They're in the same body, but the, their approach is is so different. I've seen marriages saved. I've seen incredible bonding happen within families where obnoxious difficult teenagers suddenly softened towards their mother and to the point that they're sharing the bed with the mother and excited to go on the game drive and so happy to be a family unit because it feels right and it's not a distraction of my friends down the road or I want to go to the cool kids on the beach or it's all cool to be together on safari and mm. I think kids are Um, alarmed at how cool it is and how much they feel at home and how part of it they are and how they can interact with the guides, with the waiters, with the butlers. There's this whole menagerie of new people that they've never encountered and they're very welcomed. And that's the lovely thing about Africa is we love American guests and they're very welcomed there. And and they're wrapped in love by our team and and people beyond our team who we work with. And I think that feeling like you belong is a natural sort of physiological process that's taking place in the body, Mm -hmm. but then the sort of interaction with the people around you escalates that. And often when you travel, you feel like the tourist. you feel, you can't speak Italian or French and you look not so cool. And it's, you're not integrated. You're not immersed. And I think what we do is we take you on that immersion. So you feel fully part of it. And I think that the most obvious sort of example I can give you is that people come to me saying, I just want to go to Africa once. I'm prepared to spend the money, spend the time. I'm just going once. And they never go just once because it has been the best experience of their life and they can't get enough of it. Yeah, it
0: feels it, it, the, As you just described it, it feels like it is almost coming home when they didn't know that it was home for them. Exactly. They, they feel welcomed and they can think differently. Do you limit, just curious, do you limit technology while people are on your, your trips?
1: No, I, I would never dare do that. <laughs> I'd be too mm. scared. And there is Wi Fi everywhere in Africa now. And I think what's remarkable is you see I just had actually a woman, she's an interior designer. She was on our greatest safari on earth trip, wonderful lady from San Diego. She came with her laptop and her, her drawings and she's I'm gonna get a lot of work done. I'm so excited. And two days in, she's like, but I haven't touched my laptop. None of that <laughs> stuff matters. having the best time this is amazing all my creativity is just flowing and Mm. i don't don't need to touch my technology and that's that's so remarkable because then it means i've created the stillness i've stopped the fight i've stopped the anxiety and they've let go of the world and they are coming back into their bodies and the best piece of themselves is coming through to the surface Mm. And, and and that's i think what a lot of people Maybe don't put words to because it can't. It's very hard to you, you. Why am I feeling so great? What is happening to me? And that's why I reached out to the poet and philosopher David White to help me put words to the experience. Because as a scientist and a poet, yes. Yes. I
0: felt
1: we could stay away from anything woo woo and get to the the real deep stuff with the words I struggle to come up with.
0: Yeah, and then even from a right a technological lens. You could probably see the screen usage is down. And someone uh, I presented last week, and they said one of the greatest takeaways from our stories that we shared was that they were going to stop scrolling and start living. They weren't looking for this to be refreshed, an app to be refreshed. They wanted their souls to be refreshed. It sounds like that is the type of environment that Roar Africa is able to provide. Uh, Two last questions for you, and again, this has been so great for me to learn, for me to even think differently. I'm looking outside differently as a result of this brief conversation, Deborah. That's what you are doing. That's what you and your team are doing. How are you able to empower those that experience a a trip with you all, whether it is uh, into the wild or the greatest safari on earth? Is there a way that you help to enable and empower people to continue to think about Roar Africa?
1: I think that they they do experience a deep connection with our team, right? So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's many people that they touch, not just me, there's many people. And I think what we've been really good at is threading the same type of needle through the fabric of the company, right? So you, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who you speak to, you're getting the same passion, enthusiasm, love, pride. The one thing that's so great about tourism in Africa is everybody's proud, right? The porter, the driver, the pilot, they're proud. They want to share this land. They want to share these animals. They love them deeply. And that's such a lovely thing that that flows all the way through. But guests Mm -hmm. tend to stay with us for life. They sign up for our newsletter, which is every two weeks. They follow our Instagram and we do a lot of work. I say, my goodness, we're a production company these days, not a travel company, because it is about recreating these experiences and sharing what tourism and, and the importance of coming to Africa really means to the people on the ground, to the saving of the wild spaces, to how we treat this earth wherever we might be.
0: Yeah, two, two last questions for you. Uh, as you just described what you were doing for Africa, are there any other destinations that maybe you had traveled to in the past or are aware of that you're thinking, you know what, yes, we have Roar Africa, but maybe I found this, this part of the world and maybe we would try to duplicate a Roar Africa in Roar XYZ destination. Has anything? Has any other destination intrigued you? To even think about that, if we're not giving away secrets, but...
1: No, no, not at and all. It, I did look at India about eight years ago, and I traveled mm-hmm. there extensively with my husband and researched it. But it's not core to who I am. It's mm-hmm. not in my blood and my DNA. So yes. we have decided to only stick to the 12 countries we know inside out, where we have our own people on the ground, and where I can make miracles happen that I can't do anywhere else
0: yeah yeah because in what i love deborah it's not about the money right you're leading a group of hundreds of individuals 20 to 30 million dollars great but why do roar india if you have no love or passion maybe you have love maybe you have passion but there's this there's not this internal desire because you grew up in africa and you know what it has to offer and and you know what it is doing for the people of africa as well as tourism
1: Exactly, and I think I and I know how to do it for Americans with the meticulous execution and service and that which is so mm-hmm. important when you're going to a destination you don't know, and you're fearful of, and when you've got the perception of just how hard it is to get from JFK to Miami.
0: Yes, uh, the the guest that you had referenced, I know, initially started off with your friends in New York as an example. Are there Americans that are your clients from all over the United States?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would say even more, 75% are outside of New York. Uh, okay. Enough here. So they're not all New Yorkers.
0: Okay, amazing. Last question for you. As you were a salesperson, as you shared with us when you first moved to, to New York, how did you handle the transition of being a salesperson responsible for yourself and numbers and customers, great, to then being an entrepreneur to now leading and being CEO and founder. Tell us just briefly about that transition. Was it a natural transition or did it take some time?
1: I think it's a natural transition because the baseline of it all is also survival, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a salesperson because I had to survive. I've been trying to survive since I was five in a bush war in Zimbabwe. I'm still a salesperson, very much a salesperson. And I love that. That's the greatest part of my job. And if I could only be a salesperson, I'd be so happy. And then transitioning to a leader, I'm now, I feel that responsibility of the 40 lives that I support every day, right? 85% of my company's female. I've tried to bring more and more women into the tourism industry in leadership positions. So we're not delegated to the kitchen and reservations as has been the sort of historical picture. So Mm -hmm. that is my work i think you're selling at every level i don't know why there's not a phd in sales at some of these universities because to me as a ceo that's the number one skill that we all need
0: yeah i agree i agree amazing amazing deborah i could truly talk to you all day you are a fascinating person james was absolutely right you need to speak with deborah she is remarkable Deborah, I'm going to give out the website uh, roarafrica.com. Wonderful descriptions of ultra luxury private African safaris, Kenya, Botswana, Rwanda, and South Africa. And truly a grouping of luxury African safari specialists. Every itinerary is exclusively designed. And you are absolutely right. You are making it easy and convenient to be able to enable people to get into the wilderness to stop scrolling, to enjoy the stillness, get back to their creativity, put technology down, and realize probably their impact to the world and to everyone else. Deborah, last words, you, and I always like to finish the conversations if I can. So the name of the company and the name of the podcast is Most People Don't. I get individuals that do. What would you say, based on your experience, just fill in the blanks, and this is not meant to be negative, but most people don't blank. How would you fill that in?
1: I would say most people don't realize that we are part of nature, not apart
0: from it. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. And what a way to end. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our guest today, Deborah Kellmeyer, CEO and founder of Roar Africa, roarafrica.com for uh, some incredible information. I continue to look over your bio. You have won awards you have written books you are getting nominated to do this your speech viewed 191 million times so many credible things that you are doing what i've been most impressed with and not that it matters but i think our, our listeners will agree you are doing all of this for the right reasons that's why you are so successful that's why you have incredible employees incredible clients and guests amazing reviews and you're doing good you're doing good things for good people deborah cannot thank you enough
1: thank you so much for for having me and thank you to james my huge mentor for the introduction to you it was really lovely talking to you and i hope we can have you in africa sometime
0: sounds like a game plan thank you
1: thanks so much